are listening to Ukraine 242. We bring you interview subjects from all walks of life in wartime in Ukraine. Thanks to all our listeners around the world. Here is your host and Livin. Welcome to Ukraine 242. I am Anne Levine, reporting for the Pacifica Radio Network from WOMR, Provincetown, Massachusetts. Our guest is Elena Halushka, board member of the Ukrainian NGO Anti-Corruption Action Center. She is also part of the International Center for Ukraine Victory. She worked as a chief of international advocacy. She was an advisor to members of parliament. She served as a Kyiv city council member and deputy chair of the Council Commission on Housing and Energy. Olena spoke to us from Warsaw, Poland, where she is currently working. Olena Halushka, welcome to Ukraine 242. You are the co-founder of the Anti-Corruption Action Committee, and you work with the International Center for Ukraine Victory. You are quoted as saying last March, this war will define the future of democracy. Could you describe how it will define the future? Sure. If you take a look at the origins of this war, This is not just war of one country against another between Russia and Ukraine. This is actually the war of authoritarianism against democracy. This is imperial war when Russia is trying to conquer a separate, sovereign, democratic country, Ukraine. Since the revolution of dignity in 2013-2014, Ukraine has achieved huge progress in terms of building democracy. And during his speech, just two days before the large-scale invasion started, Putin mentioned by name all of the institutions we managed to establish, like National Anti-Corruption Bureau, High Anti-Corruption Court, in the selection for the highest judicial body. He attacked judicial reform and the fact that we have engaged uh, foreign experts. So that was the signal for us that Putin and Russia are scared about the democratic progress, which we have achieved on our way to the European Union. Uh, you know, Ukrainians respect human rights, market economy, fighting against corruption and implementing the so-called European values. That is why this is a civilizational war. This is the war of against democracy. And if democracy fails, this will be a turning point to the development of all democracies globally. How would you describe Ukrainian democracy prior to the escalation of the war last February? I would say that Ukraine was emerging democracy. Uh, does it mean that we did not have any problems? But we were electoral democracy where presidential or parliamentarian elections are real elections. And the result is not predefined. And the presidents are changing and the parliament composition is changing and people's desires truly matter. We had free media, 
obviously not without issues, not without the oligarchic influence, but we have amazing investigative journalists who were digging into corruptions, reporting them, which later follows up with an official criminal investigations. And we have very vibrant civil society, which continues watchdogging Ukrainian government even during the war, which is, to be honest, much more complicated than before the war, because not all of the information is open due to martial law, but civil society continues reform advocacy role. We have achieved a lot in terms of building the system from scratch of criminal justice for high-profile corruption, and that was the result of the advocacy efforts of civil society, reform-minded people in the government, and international partners. And we have achieved a lot, as I told already, in terms of transparency and public information of interest openly published. Most of the public registries were publicly available online. I mean, we had electronic declaration system for all of the public officials, starting with the president, ending with the village councillors. We had all of the public procurements moved online with the award-winning public procurement system, considered one of the most advanced in the world. The most outstanding issue, which was left before the beginning of the war, was judicial reform. But it is being fixed now, very slowly, because when the European Union granted us with EU candidate status in June, it was linked to corruption and judicial reforms. So even during the large-scale genocidal war, Ukraine manages to continue much slower, of course, democratic transformation. Ukraine is a real, emerging, maturing democracy. How will Ukraine maintain this transformation as this war continues? Do you think it will be able under these circumstances? It depends on the developments of the war. According to the estimations of the Ukrainian government, before the massive Russian missile attacks on the critical infrastructure started, Ukraine needed $5 billion monthly in order to keep the economy running. So as the economy is going down and the expenses are rising, it's getting much more complicated to move forward. From our perspective, to get more weapons is the top priority. So we managed to push Russians away from Ukraine. That would obviously significantly ease our work on democratization. But overall, I'm quite optimistic because we have anti-corruption reform since 2014 and the European Union accession process gives a very powerful leverage of reforms advocacy. So even if there are some things that will backslide, I'm sure that we will manage to fix them using the European Union accession instruments. Olena, do you have any prediction about how this ground war will end or when? Well, that will depend on the amounts and quality of Western weapons from our international partners. 
The sooner we get weapons, the better. And according to different estimations, the optimal scenario might be one more year of war. Unfortunately, if the pace of providing weapons remains as right now, the war will continue much longer than if we receive weapons like modern tanks, modern fighter jets, more infantry fighting vehicles, more armored personnel carriers, and longer range missiles. Because air and missile defense systems alone cannot have 100% of efficiency, particularly for such a large country as Ukraine. And Russia is striking our critical energy infrastructure, but not only. They are targeting, you know, houses, residential buildings. They are targeting schools and kindergartens. So in order to defend ourselves from Russian missile strikes, we need the capacities to strike the launchers from which Russia is firing those missiles. So last year, our chief commander, General Zaluzhny, gave an interview where he spoke out very clearly about the needs of our armed forces. And he said that Ukraine needs 300 or 500 tanks. The UK committed around 14 Challenger 2 tanks. Uh, Poland is ready to deliver around 14 Leopard 2 tanks. But unfortunately, they are blocked by the German government, who is producer of those tanks, and therefore they need to give the consent for the export licenses. Unfortunately, despite the request from the Ukrainian government last spring, Germany has never promised us Leopard 2 tanks yet. And the stance of Chancellor Scholz have been that Germany is not going to be the first country which will provide Ukraine with the new types of weapons. I think that probably he's afraid of Russia. So his stance was that we're not going to do that alone. However, UK is sending their Western-made Challenger 2 tanks. And there is Poland and Finland ready to provide Ukraine with Leopard 2 tanks. And the U.S. is not opposing this idea. And uh, Chancellor Scholz shifted his position from we're not going to do that alone to we need not only the consent of the U.S., we need the U.S. to send Abrams tanks to Ukraine and then we will release the Leopard tanks which, to be honest, makes absolutely no sense from the military perspective because Abrams tanks are complicated for maintenance and logistics. They are using a certain type of fuel, which you cannot easily supply for the front lines, and they are not used by the European states, unlike Leopard 2 tanks that are used by 13 European states, meaning that, you know, from the geographical perspective, that would be much easier to arrange the logistics and maintain Leopard 2 tanks for, for Ukraine in Europe. 
That is why we are reading his argument about escalation statements as Chancellor Scholz dragging his feet despite the fact that these tanks can be saving innocent lives of people who never started this war, who are the victims of this war. I am Anne Levine from WOMR Provincetown, Massachusetts, reporting for the Pacifica Radio Network. Thank you for joining us. Our guest is Olena Halushka of the International Center for Ukraine Victory. I'd like to shift now to your advocacy trip to Japan. Sure. We have just conducted a one-week trip to Japan together with my colleagues from the partner organization New Europe Center and the International Center for Ukrainian Victory because Japan is a very important country, the chair of the G7 group in 2023. And they are also going to be a non-permanent member of the UN Security Council. Ukraine has been traditionally working more closely with transatlantic partners and not paying enough attention to other regions. Japan was one of the first Asian countries that introduced sanctions against Russia. And Japan is helping us in terms of humanitarian assistance. So it was incredibly important to also pay our gratitude to this country. But besides all those things that I mentioned, Japan has a very unique experience. This is the experience of nuclear disasters. So Japan was the only country in which the nuclear bomb was used. And also Japan had a very big tragedy, the Fukushima disaster. And if you take a look at what Russia is doing today in Ukraine, they are basically threatening to use nuclear weapons against Ukraine, but they are also implementing nuclear terrorism at the power plant. So they have occupied a Zaporizhia nuclear power plant, the biggest nuclear power plant in Europe. And in the next round of their offensive, they are planning to occupy nuclear power plant situated 40 kilometers from the border with Belarus. And when they are striking missiles at Ukraine, they are very often flying very close to Ivdano-Ukrainska power plant, another nuclear power plant. And when they are attacking our energy systems, they want to disconnect all our power plants from the grid. And if nuclear power plants are disconnected from the grid, not only are they not producing the electricity, but they are not getting the electricity necessary for their in-house needs, for cooling the reactors. And if our plants are working only on diesel generators, that creates a very big potential for dangerous situation. So we asked Japan as the chairman in G7 
to keep Russian nuclear terrorism in their focus, to make Russian nuclear terrorism the red line of J7, to make sure that International Atomic Energy Agency, which is the key governing body in nuclear safety, that they are properly doing their work, making all of effort to decrease Russian nuclear terrorism, and that they also initiate the sanctions against the key agency, Trosatom, of which this nuclear terrorism is being implemented. Overall, I think that our advocacy trip to Japan was, was very good. We met with the parliament, the government, think tanks, also journalists, and we agreed on priorities for further steps. So we will definitely continue cooperating with Japan very closely in, in the future. As you pointed out, Japan is the only country that has sustained nuclear bombing of Hiroshima and Nagasaki. And then, as you pointed out, the nuclear disaster in Fukushima. What do they say about the potential of Russia using more nuclear weapons? Are they aligned with Germany's thought that providing certain weapons might provoke Russia? No. They realize the scale of Russian nuclear terrorism very clearly. And they also understand that if Russia is allowed to do anything related to the nuclear terrorism in Ukraine, this will be the end to worldwide nuclear non-proliferation. This will basically trigger absolutely the opposite. This will trigger nuclear weapons race. Because if you take a look at the case of Ukraine, In 1994, Ukraine gave up the third largest nuclear arsenal. And right now, not only haven't we received any security guarantees, we were attacked in 2014 and we are now in the face of potential nuclear attack. What signal is this sending to everybody? Two signals. First, to the dictators develop nuclear weapons and do whatever you want, any kind of aggression you want, and nobody will stop you. You will have absolute impunity. And the signal this sends to everybody else is that your survival depends directly on whether you have nuclear weapons or not. Because if you do not have them, you might be the victim of anybody who has nuclear weapons. That would be the end of the rules-based order and we will be thrown back into the world as it was centuries ago. And the consequences is much more complicated than Germany sees that we will deny weapons, there won't be nuclear strike and everything would be fine. There's no such link. But if Ukraine is denied assistance needed for our defense and our survival in this existential war and this nuclear threat, it is the end for non-proliferation in terms of nuclear weapons. And Japan understands this very well. That is why their J7 summit in summer this year will be in Hiroshima. 
a very strong signal from the international community that using nuclear terrorism is a red line. You were just back in Ukraine. Tell us what you saw. Russia is systematically destroying Ukraine town by town, town by town, town by town. While we are denied all of the weapons we request, take a look at what they have done to Mariupol, Volnovakh, Popasna, Severodonetsk, right now Soledar, Bakhmut, towns 80-90% destroyed, mostly with the artillery, but also with the tanks, with the missiles. I was in the western part of the country two weeks ago. I wasn't on the front line. What I've seen was lack of electricity for um, seven, eight hours per day. But I have also seen an absolute understanding among Ukrainians that however difficult this is, We will win this war because we have no way back. And only victory will bring sustainable peace in Europe because any kind of ceasefire would mean that we will be fighting a much bigger war in a few years because Russia will take this time to rearm, to train newly mobilized people, to get new ballistic missiles from Iran, to get more ammunition from North Korea, maybe to get some additional supplies from other dictators to bypass sanctions and to close loopholes for their domestic production. And after that, they will hit much harder without repeating the previous mistakes. So for us, this is an existential fight. Either we win and bring real peace, or in five, six, seven years, our kids would need to be fighting a much bloodier war. And whether we are achieving victory with the help of Western weapons, and this will be much faster, and we will save lives, or we will achieve it with the lives of our best people, we will win because we do not have any other option. And we will be mourning because we will be losing more casualties. Entire generations of businessmen, political elite, artists, creative people, because they took up arms and and went on the front line, because we do not have any other option. What will Ukraine be in five years? To be honest, that is my favorite question because what helps me sustain this fight is seeing light in the end of the tunnel. And for me, that's dreaming about how Ukraine will be. So in five years, I'm sure that we will have the full victory. We will be already rebuilding the new Ukraine very actively, not a Soviet legacy, but with green energy you know, friendly towards the people and using best practices. And Ukraine will be rising as phoenix from ashes. And Ukraine will absolutely be on the way towards European Union. And I hope that we will have NATO membership. One of the best guarantees that Russia does not dare to attack us again. 
And there will be accountability for Russia for war crimes, also for the highest leadership of Russia, who gave the order for the Russian aggression, which was the primary crime for all of the subsequent crimes. And uh, we will continue our democratization. And I hope that we will also be sharing our experience of democratization with other countries and how to sustain energy system during a large scale attack on the energy system. Our armed forces will be training armed forces of allied states to make sure that this never happens again. I think that Ukraine will have big potential. I'm just really sorry that the price for bringing up this potential is such a high for us. Elena Halushka, thank you so much for your time and your expertise and for the work that you do. Take care. Stay safe. Thank you. Goodbye. Bye. Our thanks to Elena Halushka. She is a board member of the Ukrainian NGO Anti-Corruption Action Center. She is also part of the International Center for Ukraine Victory. She worked as a chief of international advocacy at the post-Maidan reanimation of package reforms. She was an advisor to members of parliament and served as a Kyiv city council member and deputy chair of the Council Commission on Housing and Energy. An avid writer and political commentator, her work can be found in outlets such as The Washington Post, The Atlantic, Foreign Policy, EU Observer, and The Kyiv Post. Olena spoke to us from Warsaw, Poland.
Chervona Kalina by Estonia Sings for Ukraine. Composer and lyricist Stepan Charnetsky. Arranger Jonas Tarm. Soloist Vavara Brajnik. Conductor Hirvo Serva. Editing Ukraine 242 by Ursula Rudenberg for the Pacifica Radio Network. Recording by Michael Levine. For more information and to see pictures of our guests, go to ukraine242.com. That's ukraine242.com. To send a message of encouragement to the Ukrainian people, call 510-883-3115 and leave your voice message. Your words will be translated into Ukrainian and broadcast on the radio throughout Ukraine on Kraina FM's 24-city network. That's 510-883-3115. Thank you for joining us. This is Anne Levine. Until next week on Ukraine 242.